Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Space, a podcast brought to you by the University of Toronto Aerospace Team. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to T-Sauce with uh, Theo, Jaden, and Katan, your hosts here. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about gravity. Well, I guess more specifically, we'll be talking about microgravity. So before we get into that, I think we'd like to kind of just introduce the concept of gravity for, I, I know everybody is familiar with gravity, but what is it really? So every object in the universe, anything with mass really, kind of has this force of this weird force of attraction where it attracts anything else with mass. So you and I have gravity, you know, your cat has gravity, your dog has gravity, everything has gravity. It just happens to be such a really weak force that only things with really large mass can be noticed like their fields of gravity, such as the earth, the sun, or even bigger or denser things like black holes. So that's a bit of the basics on gravity and everybody knows, you know, the whole story about Newton having an apple fall on his head. But which may or may is, not be hypocritical. Which it's may or may not even have happened. Just, yes, just it is disclaimer. likely untrue. Highly but, improbable that actually happened. But it's but, a nice story. It's a nice story. Because before we, we all know, stories. we all know before that apple fell on Newton's side, things were just floating around. Yeah, gravity didn't but, exist. <laughs> yes, some say Newton invented gravity. Ooh. But really, what we want to talk about is kind of the state of microgravity, right? And I mean, you know, you might ask, what is the difference between microgravity and zero gravity? Really, it's just scientists being ultra specific about the fact that gravity is never actually zero in any part of the universe, really, because gravity fields extend forever, even if they're very, very small. So, for example, astronauts on the ISS in low Earth orbit actually are experiencing some form of gravity. And this is a very limited form of gravity. But if an interesting fact is that if it wasn't actually in orbit, then it, the ISS would actually just fall towards the Earth. So basically, the fact that it's, it's actually constantly falling, kind of like, um, I guess the analogy is like something swirling down the toilet bowl, right? It's just going round and round and round and round. But if it just stopped, then it would go straight down to the Earth. So this is the kind of gravity we're talking about where it's not exactly zero, but it's pretty close. And conversely, if it's going fast enough, it's just going to keep spinning, right? That's kind of what is going on in orbit. It's, right, and it's free fall. Free fall mm -hmm. is defined as the only force acting on something being gravity. So as long as you're maintaining your velocity around the Earth and gravity is the only thing kind of pulling you back in, you can keep going perpendicular and, and you can do that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, then you get to the idea of if you speed up, right, then you get to an escape velocity. And what that would be is the amount of energy, I guess, somebody needs to escape a gravitational field and things that are in or orbit kind of stay at this nice sweet spot where they're not too slow, but not too fast. Mm -hmm. And one good way to visualize this is to think of a, a ball on a string. So if you keep spinning that ball around, it's basically going to be like the ISS and, and the string is pulling on that object to keep it in orbit. And then as you're saying, Katan, if, if that ball speeds up, it's going to require more force to keep it in that loop. 
and since gravity can't spontaneously increase the force applied, it's going to go further out. Right. So now that we know a bit about gravity and kind of what microgravity is, it's important. And I guess the focus of this episode will be to understand what these things do to astronauts and humans when they get into these environments. And now we've got to you know, give you the disclaimer that we're not biologists, we're not cosmobiologists, and we are in no way experts on this topic, but it is important for anyone who's, I guess, interested in space or even ever wants to go to space to understand what's happening to our bodies. That's what we're going to talk about today. Disclaimer, this is not space medical advice. (laughs) (laughs) If you are in space, do not take our advice. Take, please take the space doctor's advice. Um, But yeah, I guess before we can talk about the human effects, we can probably talk about uh, other kind of studies that were done before we were sending up humans. We were sending up, you know, plants, animals, trying to see what happens to other, you know, living beings. Um, So they've done a a couple of studies. We can kind of go through some of the interesting stuff. But uh, plants, as you can imagine, when they're growing on Earth, they've got two systems. You'll learn this in high school biology if you took it. There's the root system and the shoot system. So root system goes down, shoot system goes up, right? Um, obviously you need gravity for something to grow downwards. Uh, what was happening in microgravity once they had things, uh, they were trying to grow plants in space in microgravity environments is that the growth direction is disrupted. So your roots might grow in the same direction as your shoots and then everything's a little bit funky. So it's interesting to see how that works because now the water flow is different. Everything is skewed, right? Um, so that's one hard to grow plants when the roots are facing up. Right? Yeah. Like your plants just look like a U. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the effects. Um, animals also, one interesting thing that we came across was they had sent up a spider. I don't know why that was what they thought to do. (laughs) Um, but I guess they were interested in seeing how can spiders spin webs in microgravity? Does it affect anything? Um, this spider garden spider spun a perfect web. Uh, the spider's name was Arabella, if you're curious. Um, but the thread was significantly finer. So there's extra studies done on that kind of thing. But this is just like an interesting kind of analog as to what kind of studies have been done and what are the effects on, you know, other forms of life, plants and animals. Right? And I guess an interesting note, and we'll touch on this later too, is that there was another study done with mice, you know, because mice are the classic test subject. Mm-hmm. And it involved artificial gravity, which is something we'll come back to later again. And one mouse was put under artificial gravity such that it was the same gravity field as the Earth, which is what we call 1G. And the other one was under no additional gravitational field in space. So they they noticed that the, the mouse who was under artificial gravity actually had no muscle atrophy, which we'll learn is a you know, severe side effect of having no um, gravitational field because your muscles aren't working as hard. Little mouse astronaut. <laughs> what if they got stressed when they were going up? <laughs> I wonder if they gave them like little helmets. Probably not, but <laughs> I like to helmets. think they do. I like to think they do. Or do they anesthetize them before they go up? I wonder. What does that mean? Like just put them to sleep so that they're not, you know, running around when the rocket launches. Maybe, because I guess you wouldn't want that. These are the things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like, that's a good point for sure in terms of 
the the ways in which biology responds to the microgravity environment it mm -hmm. hints to how the the systems the biological systems have adapted evolutionarily to this substance that is gravity and we'll talk more about the different ways in which this comes up but it's really unique to think that over generations of species the the fundamental force of gravity like no one told these organisms gravity existed but they adapted these mechanisms for survival that are so dependent on gravity and and this is really why it's a problem for biology because when you go into an environment where that fundamental process no longer exists in the same force that it has been for all of evolutionary history that's a problem for the way these organisms tend to develop mm -hmm. exactly especially now when we're thinking about you know humans and you know leaving the earth maybe living in different places i think it's very important to understand you know how our bodies react to this lack of gravity and of course it's a bit it would be naive to think that you know humans are different than other animals we we are as dependent on this force of gravity mm -hmm. as these other animals and i guess that's where the the focus of most of research shifts to right why are we really studying these other animals and plants? Of course, we need to know what happens to them too, because if we want to use them in space, but of course, we're also trying to learn what would happen to us um, without directly always using humans for experiments, because that's a touchy subject. Mm -hmm. um, and so that I guess we can kind of shift towards uh, effects on the human biology. And really it has a different effect on every part of the of the human body right uh i also it's worth noting that there are other major challenges in space such as radiation but in our case we're we're going to try to focus mostly on the microgravity effects mm -hmm. and you were talking about experimentation on humans earlier um but I think what lots of people don't know is that uh, astronauts are every single day, almost every single hour, they're doing all these, you know, tests and blood tests and, you know, bone density tests and all of these things. And, you know, they're keeping track of all these things for science. Um, and sometimes you get very lucky scenarios. Uh, for instance, a twin study that was done, and I think lots of people know about um, this one. There's a, a couple of twins that were both astronauts, Scott and Mark Kelly. And um, I think it was a very, very special opportunity for, for NASA and for, you know, space medicine in general to be able to study twins, right? Because they've got the same genetic makeup, but now you can send one up, you can keep one here and see what changes uh, in microgravity. Right. Removes a lot of the different variables that you can't really control if it's not twins. Exactly. Right. So Scott spent one year in low Earth orbit while Mark was a retired astronaut on Earth. Um, it is worth noting that Mark was also an astronaut, mm -hmm. so it's not like he was devoid of that uh, in influence from space. But uh, most of the impacts of space do go away over time. So it was like having two different samples. Um, and a lot of current research on the effects of um, the space and microgravity and radiation and other, other space factors is a product of this um, huge uh, body of work around the twin study, 
right? And actually, we we have a teammate uh, of ours, uh, Aaron Richardson, who actually participated in a, a parabolic flight with NASA to study the effects of microgravity on telomeres. So we had the chance to catch up with her and chat with her. So here's what she had to say. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Aaron is a student at the University of Toronto uh, and working on the University of Toronto aerospace team. And she also did a bit of work uh, on a microgravity experiment. So I'll let her introduce herself and tell us a bit about that. Yeah, thanks for having me. So my name is Aaron Richardson. I'm in my last year of engineering science um, in the aerospace option here at U of T. Um, and super excited to tell you about a project I did last year to look at microgravity's effects on human telomeres. And this was during my PY. All right, so can you tell us a bit about like, I guess your experiment setup and what you guys were really looking at? Yeah, so this was inspired by NASA's twin study. So um, astronaut Scott Kelly spent a year on the ISS to, and his twin brother stayed on Earth to look at a whole bunch of effects of spaceflight on the human body. But the most striking discovery was that Scott Kelly's telomeres got longer. And this is the opposite of what was hypothesized because normally our telomeres shorten as we get older. Um, and the spaceflight was actually expected to shorten his telomeres faster than his brothers because it's a pretty stressful and um, like harmful environment. So Scott's telomeres getting longer was a big surprise and we don't know exactly what caused it. And on top of that, there's a bunch of effects um, of spaceflight that their effects on telomere dynamics aren't yet well understood. So things like radiation, microgravity, um, lifestyle changes. So I had the idea to send cells up on a parabolic flight so that we could isolate that uh, microgravity variable from the other factors present on the ISS and discern if it was responsible for what we saw in the twin study. What were some, I guess, some challenges that were associated to like the microgravity work, right? I, I know it's like a bit challenging to work with some of the fluids, right? Yeah, working with fluids in microgravity was super challenging because we needed our system to be automated. It all had to happen within this closed box that we couldn't open during flight. So um, we needed to perform the injections itself. But working in um, an environment that's going to go through microgravity and hypergravity meant that there were a lot of safety constraints on our system, of course. So no fluids could escape because they could be floating around. So everything had to be sealed. But at the same time, we had to accommodate for pressure changes um, because fluids were moving between parts of the system. And also um, the environment had to be like was susceptible to pressure changes. So as we climbed in altitude, we knew that the pressure in the cabin would decrease. So we had to think, think about things like having um, containers that could expand and contract as fluids were pushed into them. Um, we had valves to control when fluids could go certain places. But this was also challenging because with valves and tubing um, and adapters come a lot of compatibility challenges. I guess to wrap up our segment, one last question. I, I, it's my understanding you did go on the flight, right? Yeah. Um, so how did it feel? <laughs> it felt awesome. I think it was maybe the coolest experience of my life. I had spent like a whole year basically waiting for that day to happen, picturing it and watching videos and um, 
thinking of what it would be like, but <laughs> the first problem when I started to float, I was like giggling for six minutes straight and I really <laughs> felt like I was in space. Like I, it felt like, I don't know how to describe it, but I really felt like I was an astronaut on the ISS and I've watched all these videos of Chris Hadfield and other astronauts like living their life and brushing their teeth. Um, and when you see everything start to float up in front of you, <laughs> I was like, like squealing to the, the uh, like flight test engineers on board. I'm like, I'm, I'm in space. I feel like I'm in space. And everyone was laughing at me, but it was the best feeling ever. All right. Well, thank you for telling us about all that. And thanks for coming on here on TSAWS, Aaron. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. And we're back. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us. And now, you, as you can see, and Aaron was talking about, there are some interesting effects on the human body from um, microgravity in space, such as the lengthening of telomeres, which is, as uh, Aaron mentioned, the opposite of what we would expect. So some of the other um, effects affect all the systems of the human body. So you guys want to take it from there? Yeah, sure. So uh, something that happens a lot to astronauts um, is that they'll get something space motion sickness, right? And this happens due to the absence of gravity. And basically, the input signals that they have in their in their brain and you know their neurological systems that help them define their position um, are are skewed because now you don't have this gravitational force to kind of keep you centered. Um, so your body is unable to decipher where your relative position is to things. And then, you know, this results in nausea, vomiting, appetite loss. Um, most astronauts develop these symptoms in the first few days. Uh, so maybe the astronaut life is not super glamorous if you're puking for like the first week that you're up there. Um, but that's definitely uh, something that happens just because, you know, your body cannot kind of identify its position relative to things because now you're missing this force that your body's so used to. Yeah. Yeah. This is about two thirds of astronauts, I think. Mm -hmm. somewhere mm -hmm. around there yeah it's, it's pretty brutal that's it's something that is not underscored because you know it's not the glamorous side but ultimately it's a pretty harsh environment up there the other kind of transfer that occurs is fluids so in regular gravity we've got a constant force pulling our fluids down but once that's removed fluids distribute through the body because that's just the, the lowest energy state is to be uniform so you'll get this bulging in the upper extremities where you wouldn't usually have as much fluid that can result in some really peculiar eye symptoms. So in terms of losing vision or having distorted vision for a time, these uncomfortable adjustments that are mm -hmm. exposed in microgravity. You'll usually see astronauts heads. If you ever watch like a broadcast there on the ISS, like their heads are just big <laughs> or you'll maybe see like veins popping up here. And that's exactly because of what Jaden described. It's like the fluids, you know, they're all up here now. Right. And the reason that is, is due to pressure gradients, right? It, the, the idea that gravity is usually pulling down, which it works the same for fluids. It's usually pulling down on the fluids, but when that, you know, that, in space, there, there's none of that. So suddenly uh, fluids want to flow to the areas of low pressure. So they'll go and kind of swell up in the brain and swell up in your head. And I mean, as you guys were talking about loss of vision, you know, pop mm -hmm. culture kind of refers to that like space blindness, things like that. And of course, that's an extreme case. Doesn't usually go that way. 
but this is why astronaut screening is so severe. One interesting thing that I met, had a chance to read about, um, so there's another space podcast, I guess we'll give them a slight shout out, Houston, we have a podcast by NASA themselves. And I don't think they need our shout out. <laughs> yeah, they definitely don't need our shout out. <laughs> we'll, we we'll grace them with a mention. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a Dr. Peter Norris on there who was talking specifically about gravity. And like you guys said, the first uh, few minutes, a lot of people, most people even feel very, very sick. But they also talked about things like you mentioned when the, the fluids go to the head, uh, you'll get things like edema. And edema is basically when there's high blood pressure in, in vessels, uh, it increases the rate of uh, fluid transfer into the tissues. Now, when you have a, a lot more pressure in the head, that means you're getting more fluid in your brain tissues and your other head tissues, which can be a severe problem over time. And with that thing of kind of difference in pressure, because your fluids aren't subject to a force, your circulatory system is kind of out of whack, right? So instead of the, the kind of rapids ride of having to counteract gravity, it's more like a lazy river where your mm -hmm. blood is kind of flowing and your heart's like, oh, great, I can kind of take the day off. You know, I, I don't need to pump as hard to get fluids moving through the system. And that can kind of lead to some, uh, what's, the, what's the word, heart capacity loss, where you, you kind of lose your, your heart muscle a little bit. And the same thing can be seen in other muscles that you don't use. So if you don't use it, you lose it. That's one of the unfortunate things about biology is it's so adaptive, it will just optimize whenever there's something that can be optimized. So quite often that's in the form of muscular and skeletal reformatting, remodeling from a lack of gravity. Yep, exactly. Muscular atrophy is like probably one of the one of the biggest things that happens. And, and that's what we hear about a lot. And also bone density, you're losing bone calcium is huge. Um, one maybe fun part of it, though, is that you you get taller in space, right? Because <laughs> your spinal discs are now there's less, you know, gravitational force on there. So there's a little bit more space there. Uh, you can you yeah, can you, get decently taller. You lose all muscle, but yeah, great, you get taller. <laughs> so. You know what? <laughs> There's Pros some cons, silver lining. Man. Some silver lining. You do get shorter once you come back, though. It decompresses, but there's some silver lining. The TV show The Expanse kind of plays on this, where the the Belters is this kind of cast of humans who live in in the exterior, the belt of the the solar system, and so they're kind of like a, a mining community. And because they live in low gravity for so long, they're these really lanky people with brittle <laughs> bones, et cetera. And right. just start like a basketball league. That's right. <laughs> the outer space basketball league. Yeah. It, it's kind of a neat point on the bone thing because we often think of bones as mostly inflexible and, and rigid structures because, well, they're, they're stiff and we see them after death, right? In terms of skeletons. So we kind of associate them as this rigid body, but they are really dynamic. So you, you get a new skeleton, it remodels every 10 years. And inside the bone tissue, you have multiple different types of cells. So cells to make bone, cells to eat away bone, and then cells to monitor how that bone is responding to stresses. In the, in the environment of space, what happens is those, those cells monitor and they say, oh, we're under less stress now. 
so we can actually reduce the matrix we can make it more porous and then when you come back to earth you have these problems because your bones are not as strong as they were when you left you know one interesting thing about bones that i don't think most people probably realize is like you said they're dynamic but that's what what's really making our bones strong every single day is that they're actually constantly breaking right it's they're constantly breaking like mini fractures all the time because of gravity when you walk it's weird to think about but your bones are breaking and the thing is in gra in microgravity you you don't have that right you don't have that constant force of your bones breaking it's kind of like muscles right your muscles get stronger when you work out because your muscles break same thing with the bones but that's actually one of the reasons why your bone density goes down right because you're not having that constant fracturing healing fracturing healing process man i've always told people i've never broken a bone and now i can't say that anymore you guys just ruined it for me shoot <laughs> you're always breaking bones, i'm always so breaking it's bones. the opposite extreme exactly oh man but, yeah so as we're talking about the human side of the equation the other thing to remember is that we as humans are not just one kind of organism we have a microbiome inside of us and there are a lot of bacteria and yeast etc that contribute to our daily survival they also change their behavior in space so avanash mccullough was the lead on utat and he's worked in this field to discuss uh, to, to investigate really the effects of the microbiome in the human body in uh, these kind of microgravity environments. So we talked with him about kind of his specific experiences and, and to learn a little bit more about this. Hello, Avinash. Thanks for joining us and for sharing your expertise. Avinash is a lead on UTAT in the past and has some expertise in the field of kind of biology and has an interest in space biology. So yeah, uh, why don't you uh, share some of your background and then we can get into questions. Hello, um, my name is Avinash Mukala. I'm a PhD candidate right now at the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. Um, and my project right now is focused on uh, mitochondrial quality control um, in the context of ischemia reperfusion injury. Uh, so it's like a whole set of processes and pathways that become altered under specific scenarios of oxidative stress. Uh, and it's a very novel field that's kind of emerging and a lot of things are unknown in different organ systems. And so I'm focused on understanding these pathways in the context of liver physiology. Uh, previously, I was involved in UTAT in terms of helping develop the, uh, the payload aspect of the satellite. Um, and that kind of led me to think more about different ways that, uh, for example, mitochondrial quality control is relevant in um, space biology. Fantastic. And kind of surrounding the topic of this episode, we've discussed a bit about the relationship between microgravity's effects on the human biology, but there's also this symbiosis between human biology and the microbiome and the different organisms within the human body. So in what ways do we kind of depend on our microbiome? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways. So 
for here's like I'll give you a few examples and kind of explain them. Um, so there's this interesting there's some interesting studies whereby like um, babies that are born through uh, the C-section versus by natural birth um, have like long-term differences in inflammation biology. Another kind of interesting aspect of uh, the effect of microbiome on humans right now is how does the composition of the flora in the gut um, modulate um, cytokines in the bloodstream? So that's like an area that's received quite a bit of interest, quite a bit of research funding to figure that out. Um, and these cytokines are, are what exactly in the bloodstream? Uh, cytokines are essentially inflammatory or anti-inflammatory molecules that act on um, it's like T cells, like neutrophils, basophils, like different kinds of immune cells. Uh, and by doing so, they can increase or decrease cytokine production, for example. So here's an example that's kind of relevant recently. So when people get COVID-19, for example, and they end up in the ICU, one common characteristic of these patients is that um, there's this thing called the cytokine storm, um, whereby the patient gets more and more sick because the body is reacting to itself being sick almost. And so this increases uh, the amount of cytokines, and this makes them be sicker and sicker in the ICU. And if you're not vaccinated, then it gets even worse, right? Things like that. That's like one aspect of it. Um, I also, okay, there's also this, uh, probably like four or five years ago, there's been a lot of hype around trying to understand the connection between bra the brain and the gut microbiome. For example, some, re some studies have shown in mice and cells uh, that like the composition of the microbiome in your gut um, affects your mental health, for example. Um, and they were modulating these kinds of like processes by testing prebiotics, postbiotics on patients and to see if, uh, for example, people with like major depressive disorder or like anxiety or something um, would have reduced symptoms over time. And a lot of these studies were, were, were largely inconclusive, um, but they did try to note that it matters what you eat and that kind of modulates um, what's in your gut microbiome and that kind of modulates how your uh, brain performs kind of. Uh, it, it, that's the, that's how biology is like these small connections made using large experiments. And so necessarily there are these kind of relationships between the human body and the microbiome. How does that change whether it's in those microorganisms or microprocesses in the human body in the presence of microgravity? Yeah. Okay. So in the, in microgravity, there's been some studies, some of them have been done by NASA, some of them have been done by the ESA. Um, so the composition of the intestinal microbiome, um, for example, becomes more similar across astronauts in space. Um, and so like that's been shown and they connected that to showing how the, the microbiome on your skin is changing as a result of um, either it's the, it's a bi-directional relationship probably either by being more prone to having skin rashes or that the microbiome is causing the skin rashes and it could be either or really. Um, the impact of these changes on crew health actually needs quite a bit more investigation in long-term studies, but it's hard to do long-term human studies in space because the longest people have been up there is like a year. Fantastic.
Yeah. So there's obviously some kind of concern in terms of astronaut health in space. What are some of the present and future medical interventions that are being developed for space medicine, especially for kind of longer term missions? Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of, there's a lot to say at this point, actually. And uh, from my perspective, at least, I suppose I'm a little bit biased in that I'm in very, I'm very interested in the powerhouse of a cell. Um, and so NASA has recently actually said that the a major central biological hub for all of these like biochemical metabolic processes is mitochondrial dysregulation. Okay. So for example, perhaps that the mitochondria is performing uh, less in orbit than they do on earth. That isn't, that isn't the claim that could be a hypothesis. Um, but what, what people have shown is that all of these pathways seem to be connected somehow to pathways that are um, regulated by the mitochondria. Okay. So how, like, just kind of like, just to kind of talk about how they kind of showed this aspect of mitochondrial dysregulation. So um, one thing that, they, that we know is that there's an increased amount of uh, cell-free mitochondrial DNA in the bloodstream of astronauts, okay? So this is like DNA is, is elaborated by the mitochondria into the bloodstream. Uh, and so this has inflammation biology implications. Um, and there's also this thing where there's like 30 times more uh, brain-derived exosomes that get um, essentially exposed by the brain into the bloodstream. Um, it's almost like there's, a, there's an increased shedding process that's occurring. Um, and it's really hard to explain like what the consequences of the shedding process are. Some groups have claimed that monitoring the level of cell-free mitochondrial DNA in the blood um, can be one way to say like overall, the quotation marks, overall um, crew member health, like being having a way to monitor this aspect of biology and say like, okay, if they have more than say an arbitrary number, like 30 uh, like copy numbers of this thing, like then they're more likely to become like sick in this way. Kind of, that's the kind of loose connection that people have kind of proposed. Let's think, let's think about medical technologies about like what, what the different space agencies and kind of some small companies are interested in. Um, so one aspect of this is like physiological biomonitoring. Um, so for example, like there exists this like shirt apparatus that like monitors different parameters of physiology on astronauts, like heart rate, blood pressure, et cetera. And that exists right now on the international space station. So like that being, um, more capable of tracking long-term changes, like in time, that could be one aspect of, um, innovation in medical technology for space, um, biology stuff. The most interesting aspect of all of this that the one the one that's received the most amount of like attention and future attention seems to be autonomous medical management technologies um so whereby like the crew and like maybe uh in long-term space missions won't have access to high quality hospitals um where they can send people right of course they won't have access to like an or or like um dialysis machines right and so like autonomous medical management systems, which is an algorithm essentially that's on a computer, um, which you give the numbers, like give them, give it physiological biomonitoring numbers, give it blood biomarker uh, numbers, 
and it's able to kind of tell you um, how, and it's able to kind of connect these numbers to your symptomology and then tell you, you may have this diagnosis. It's kind of like a doctor in a box kind of thing, right? And it would make like healthcare delivery in deep space much more um, efficient. So those are like three major kind of um, aspects of how medical technology can evolve in for space exploration. It, it is extremely fascinating how these technologies are very much emphasizing the monitoring and data collection side. As we see with a bunch of technological advancements, you have to have that data to recruit toward the initiative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Avinash, thanks very much for your time today and, and for your expertise. It was great talking about microbiology. Thank you. And we're back again. Thanks, Avinash, for that information and the insights into the microbiome that we all live with. So thinking on the kind of virulence that we can experience in microgravity because of our microbiome, it's worth discussing how we can minimize or prevent the negative effects of microgravity in regards to these kind of microbiomes and then also to the the effects, the, the loss of forces in the body that we discussed earlier. So yeah, what are some, some of the approaches to kind of mitigating these challenges in space? Drugs. <laughs> no. Drugs and <laughs> exercise. <laughs> drugs and exercise, a wonderful combination. But of course, we don't mean illicit drugs. We mean the prescription drugs <laughs> that are uh, to tackle some of the effects, uh, especially specifically regarding to motion sickness, mm -hmm. uh, things related to your bloodstream, uh, deficiencies, right? Because you actually become slightly anemic in space. So those kinds of things, uh, they've even started creating personalized uh, drug treatments for the astronauts. So that's actually a major area of research right now. Mm -hmm. And on the side of exercise, um, I don't know if lots of people know this, but astronauts have to exercise so much when they're in space. Like, I think it's like they have to do 2.5 hours, two and a half hours, six days a week of resistive exercise, right? So they've got their, I don't know, you, maybe people have seen the video of their treadmill that they've got up there. They've also got a bike on the ISS, like a rowing machine. And they have to do a lot and a lot of exercise just to make sure their muscles are, are still intact, right? Because you, once again, we talk about you're, you're missing this force that your body is so adapted to, and you don't want to be losing too much muscle mass by the time you come back. And if you're talking about exercise, you've got to talk about RED, right? The advanced resistive exercise device. That is probably the major way that exercise is done nowadays on the ISS and in space and even training down on earth. Um, and it uses a kind of a pressure system because if you think about it, how are you going to lift weights in space? Because mm -hmm. nothing weighs That's anything. That's true. You can like so, lift hundreds of pounds like with your fingers because, yeah, microgravity. So the idea of this is to use, I think, uh, right, like pressure cylinders and uh, more like pulling uh, kind of smart ways to pull on these pressure or pu push on these pressure cylinders such that you're generating an equivalent force to whatever you would when you were lifting or running or whatever exercise you were doing. 
Um, yeah, so that's, I guess, pretty much the, the general idea of what astronauts do while they're on the ISS uh, in order to mitigate all of these effects. But also when, when they're doing their training, they go through some crazy, crazy training while they're here on Earth. And they've got some, you know, analog facilities and ways to kind of train them for that environment, prepare them for that environment. Uh, so what are some of the ways that they do that here while they're training before they go up? Well, one of the ways, kind of coming back to what you mentioned before, Theo, about losing your orientation in space and it being very much a foreign environment to kind of navigate in, is the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. This is near the Johnson Space Center in Texas. And it's not so much preparing for microgravity as it is maneuvering in the environment of space. Uh, so that th this kind of underscores how challenging it is to accurately represent the, the forces, but this is one way in which astronauts can prepare and train for the environment. Right, and I mean, I think a common thing that people will see, right, is uh, people using buoyancy uh, as a method for training. And what that Which is basically is, a big pool and, and right. you float you in it and throw someone in a pool. And the idea is, as most people would have experienced in their lives, when you're in water, you move a little bit differently and you're buoyant. So the forces acting on you can kind of even out and you can kind of float there. Right. And so NASA and other space agencies and astronauts do this uh, specifically with um, different buoyant. I guess, materials and technologies to kind of try to represent what space is like. And it's, it's funny because they actually do a lot of their training exercises underwater, right? Like they, they, rather than do it on land, a lot of their stuff is done in pools with oxygen tanks, almost kind of like the way it would be in space because like, as we all know, we can't breathe underwater too. Yeah, and they've got that full-scale model of the ISS underwater. And it's pretty cool if you ever watch videos of them because they, they go through the entire process of all their missions and stuff. But that's besides the point. But yeah, um, I guess one thing that they do is they can kind of replicate the microgravity environment before they go up. So they know how it feels and all this. But something else that I guess this we can pose this as a question is the idea of having this artificial gravity while they're up there. So instead of like preparing for microgravity here, it's like create artificial gravity there. As we talked about, uh, artificial gravity does do uh, a decent job in mice, right? Of mitigating some of the effects. But studies have also shown that this is true in humans. The, the, the biggest jump there is that uh, more investment and more research needs to be done into how to induce artificial gravity. And we've talked a bit about this in some of our episodes, right? The idea of centripetal mm -hmm. force to, to generate artificial gravity, that's probably the current most likely scenario. Um, and then it kind of leads into the question when you think about all the other ways that it's being done right now, because artificial gravity is not being done right now, is could regular people do the regular astronaut regimen, right? Could I don't know. I, I love exercise, but could I do three hours a day every single day? That would be a bit tough, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or the, all the drug treatments and most astronauts can be in the shape of their lives. Mm -hmm. So uh, something like artificial gravity could open things up realistically to space tourism, to regular people going to space. What to be more think? accessible. Yeah. 
I agree. Yeah, that three hours of exercise every day, as much as I love going to the gym, I don't know if I'm up for that either. And also just the idea of, you know, having to do all the treatments, like you said, and then the regular testing, like multiple hours every day, it requires a lot of mental fortitude, um, like physical fortitude and mental fortitude. This is why the vetting process is absolutely insane. Like lots of people will say like astronauts are like literally the peak of humanity because of how like how much they have to go through and how much you know they're really pushed to the limits while they're here and pushed to the limits while they're there um i don't know i guess it it, (laughs) it's it's interesting to think about i think it's cool if you could have this large-scale artificial gravity environment you know you'll see it in movies they're like yeah just turn on the gravity you press the button and then the gravity turns (laughs) on like (laughs) and everything falls well well, that's some technology we have not discovered yet (laughs) but in an ideal world that would be awesome you know just like you want to turn off the gravity. You're, you're in an argument with someone you just don't want to talk to them. just turn off the gravity and they just float away <laughs> um but really and- underscores the cost of being an astronaut because so inspiration for civilian mission to space they were up there for three days it's not really enough to get the detrimental effects that we're talking about here of mm-hmm. course you're gonna you're gonna have the the sudden shifts that we talked about you know inner ear whatever but when you're an astronaut, you're going to be up there for a long time. And they want to make sure that you're going to be healthy for that time, healthy and productive. So a lot of your day is taken up by other timelines. So you're doing your 2.5 hours of exercise. You're doing research, the mission that you're up there to do for the rest of that time. And so as, as cool as it is, as fascinating as it is to be up there, this is really why we're talking about accessibility, because you're up there to fulfill the mission and beyond that you can only stay up there for so long you've got to maintain that kind of level of performance and that's that's through these mitigating effects right and i mean obviously if you send civilians up or if you go uh, to a space hotel you're not ideally gonna have this mission that you're seeking to accomplish right uh you don't want to have to exercise three hours a day while what you want to be doing is chilling in a a space pool or something right so really it's it's a kind of question of accessibility like you said and hopefully in the future of kind of space technologies this is something that will become more and more of a reality where we'll kind of pair the exploration into space, the greater accessibility that's coming with more frequent launches with that kind of human side, the accessibility of, of biology entering space because it's, it's an inhospitable environment out there. So to the degree we can make that happen with technology is, is certainly an aim. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap. Hopefully we were able to pull you in on this heavy subject. <laughs> And yeah, there, there's oh certainly more to come and, and more that can be said, but we'll leave it there for now. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at underscore the sound of space to continue the conversation and let us know your thoughts on all things aerospace. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the sound of space.